be to God. Christmas Eve is always one of my favorite services of the year, and my favorite part of the Christmas Eve service is when we light our candles. Uh, and this year, we did a little different stuff. We had at the four o'clock service, the youngest child of every family come and get their candle lit from the Christ candle, and then take that out to their family. And then we had um, at the six o'clock service, our elders come forward, and our spiritual leaders took the light of Christ and took it to our church family. And both of those just awesome. They, they give me um, chills sometimes just watching the light of Christ pass from person to person uh, in our sanctuary. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing, and it, it's especially meaningful for me because it reminds me of a, a, a really important sort of memory of my teenage years. You are all aware that when I was in high school, um, I went to these youth conferences, kind of like what we're doing this summer with our students, and uh, we went to a place called Montreat, North Carolina. And uh, on Wednesday nights, it was usually a, a, like a five, six-day conference. So the third or fourth night, usually Wednesday nights, after worship, we would file out of the auditorium, and this was a big event. So there were like a thousand high school kids. And we would file out of the auditorium in complete silence. And as we walked out, we'd all take our little candle, just like these, and we would circle around the lake uh, called Lake Susan there in Montreat, which is just gorgeous. Uh, and then, um, as we do in our Christmas Eve service, um, somebody would light a candle and we would pass it around the lake. Uh, and as the light of Christ spread around the lake, we would sing. Usually, um, you know, sanctuary was one of my favorites, right? Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. With thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for you. Uh, and in those moments, not unlike our Christmas Eve service, as the light of Christ spread, it just felt like God was there. I mean, I know God's always there. That's the promise of Emmanuel. But it really felt like you could feel and see God's presence. And they were moments for me almost every year of, of my high school experience where I felt like, wow, like God showed up in this really special, sacred way. And, and I, I, I think now, in, in this series on Genesis, we talked a lot about Genesis, but I think about God hovering over the surface of the waters in creation, uh, and it just felt like God was hovering over those, those waters in that lake, and we were enjoying His presence. Uh, there's a word for that um, when you have that experience where you feel particularly close to God, and we call it an epiphany. Uh, epiphany is a word actually that has two meanings in our language. It either can mean a sudden dramatic insight. Ah, I was in the shower day and I had an epiphany about what to do with my business. Or an epiphany can be a manifestation of God to people. Uh, those words come from a, a Greek word we see a number of times in the New Testament. But the reason we talk about epiphany, uh, having these moments where God shows up in our lives or um, where we have this sudden dramatic insight, is because there is a holiday called Epiphany. Uh, the holiday called Epiphany is usually January 6th. We are cheating today. We are celebrating Epiphany a week early, and I apologize. Um, but Epiphany is that time where the Western church particularly uh, remembers the appearance of the wise men to Jesus, the, the, the first time where the Gentiles get to see and meet God. Uh, and, and we call it Epiphany Sunday uh, because it is this revealing of Jesus um, that I, I think in really powerful and dramatic ways 
um, captures the two responses that are most common when God shows up in our lives. And so when we have our epiphany moments, whether it's um, Christmas Eve or around Lake Susan or uh, in our homes or at work or wherever they might be, um, there are two most common responses to God showing up in our lives that show up very clearly in our story. One is the response of the wise men, and one is the response of King Herod. The wise men's response is faith. King Herod's response is fear. So I want to unpack those a little bit today because I think this is hugely important for us uh, as we are a people that celebrate God is with us all the time because of the miracle of Christmas and the promise of the incarnation and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Um, How do we respond when God shows up in our life? Do we respond with faith or do we respond with fear? Uh, And I want to think about Herod first. We get an interesting line uh, in uh, chapter 2, verse 3, after the wise men come and tell Herod, um, you know, where's the child who's been born king of the Jews? We heard he was here. We're told, verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. It's an interesting response by the king, right? He's frightened and all Jerusalem with him. Last year, <clears throat> I did a, a class um, about Christmas myths, and I shared some stuff um, about the wise men's story. I don't remember if I told all of you or just the people in the class. So if you've heard this before, just smile and nod and look impressed, okay? Um, but, but I think it's really helpful. So we are told these wise men, the Greek word is magi, these magi come from the east to Jerusalem. So you need to know a little bit about what is east of Jerusalem or what is east of the lands of Israel. Um, So at this time, how well you can see my map, it's a little light I realize, but um, at this time, the time of Jesus, there is an empire east of Rome called the Parthian Empire, okay? They're established in the mid-200s BC and they last to the mid-200s AD. And uh, yeah, boy, I realize it's really hard to see. Um, But basically, they come up against the Roman Empire. And uh, so the Roman Empire includes Asia Minor. We'd call it Turkey today. And it includes what we would call Syria and Palestine and then into Egypt. And east of all of that is Parthia. Okay? Um, You can take my map down. Thank you. So Parthia um, is a really scary empire for the Romans. And in and 53 AD, so 53 years-ish before Jesus, um, there's a huge battle. The Romans get crushed. Um, they're embarrassed and terrified. And then in 40 AD, I'm sorry, a BC, um, so about 40 years before Jesus, <clears throat> the Parthian Empire invades and conquers a good bit of Asia Minor and Syria and Palestine, the, la- the lands of Israel, right? Uh, and, and actually, when they come in, they appoint a guy whose name I'm surely going to say wrong. I think it's Antigonus II. Uh, they appoint a guy named Antigonus II who is of the line of the, of the last set of kings of Israel, and they appoint him king of the Jews. And he rules um, part of Jerusalem and part of the ancient territory of the Jews from 40 B.C. to 37 B.C., okay? Uh, and then uh, there's a guy um, who's named Antipater. He's Herod the Great's father. He and his son Herod uh, go to Rome and get Rome's approval and backing, and they are not Jews. They are Edomians. They're Edomites. 
uh, and they, together with Rome, overthrow Antigonus II and reconquer the land and push the Parthians out, okay? And this is kind of the beginning of Herod the Great's rule. Why all this matters is because when representatives from the royal court of the empire of Parthia show up in Herod's court and say, someone has been born who is king of the Jews, Herod and all Jerusalem think, we're going to have another war. Are we together? Because you're telling us, just like you did 30 years ago, you're going to pick somebody to be the king of the Jews, and you're going to go to war with us. That's why Herod is terrified. That's why all Jerusalem is terrified with him, right? They are afraid there's a new war coming. And actually, they're not wrong to be afraid, right? I mean, Jesus is not going to be that kind of king, but, but Herod is right to recognize that the coming of this king is going to be a threat to his world order, to his carefully constructed life, to his plan for the future. So Herod's response to hearing about the birth of Messiah is fear. The wise men have a different response, right? The, the Magi see this star, recognize that it heralds the coming of a king, a king of the Jews. We've got to have a whole conversation later about the prophet Daniel and maybe why they think that, but we're not doing that today. Um, but they see this as an opportunity for a, a fresh start right, for themselves and for the world. And, and here's what's striking for me about the Magi, their choice to come to King Herod and ask for directions is a really scary choice. Because if, if Herod's first thought is, hey, these guys from this other empire want to start a war, um, well, Herod's not a nice guy. We'll talk about how not nice Herod is in a minute. Um, there's every reason to believe that Herod might just kill these magi and find the baby, and kill the baby. And in fact, that's exactly what he's going to try to do in our story. He's going to just try to kill everybody. So the Magi come bringing gifts to Jesus, but the real sacrifice, the real scary thing they offer is they offer up their lives. They say, hey, at risk to our lives, we're going to walk into the kingdom of the person on earth who probably hates us most and ask him for directions to the guy who's going to replace him as king of the Jews. Faith, not fear. I think Herod and the Magi are all right. They're all correct. I think for those who are satisfied with this life and what it offers, or at least are trying to be satisfied with this life and what it offers, Jesus is a disruptor. Jesus is going to come and make them unhappy. He's going to mess up their plans for a convenient life. It's why I think for some folks, the church feels like an inconvenience, and prayer feels like an imposition, and God with us seems like an impossibility, and death is the ultimate terror, right? Because if you love your life as it is, and you just want to keep doing what you're doing, Jesus is a disruptor. But for those who have come to recognize that this world doesn't quite satisfy, the heralding of the Messiah is like water to a parched throat, like bread to a starving man, like light shining 
in the darkness. The response to, to God showing up in our lives is almost always going to be either fear or faith. We didn't read far enough in the story, but you got the hint. Uh, after the wise men leave, they are warned by God in a dream to go in a different direction uh, because if they'd gone back to Herod, He was going to kill them. Uh, and then Jesus' family is warned in a dream to leave Bethlehem because Herod comes and He kills all of the two-year-old and younger children in that city um, because He's trying to find and kill Jesus. By the way, uh, this response of Herod is not out of character. This is a guy who killed several of his own children. This is a guy who killed his favorite wife. Uh, Herod is a guy who lives consumed by fear, uh, and that fear drives all that he does. The wise men are different. And the wise men risk their wealth and their lives to meet Jesus. Uh, it reminds me of um, that old Nate Saint quote, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I think this intersection of faith and fear is so important for us. Uh, and I think um, it is not always as simple as us saying, hey, in this moment, I'm going to respond to God with faith. Sometimes fear and faith come hand in hand, and we're trying to work it out together. So Charles Allen tells a story, um, I think it's from a book called Victory in the Valleys, about a five-year-old little boy named Johnny. Uh, Johnny's with his mother in the kitchen, and his mother's kitchen, cooking dinner, and she says, Johnny, I need you to go uh, into the basement of the pantry and get me a can of tomato soup. And he says, Mom, I'm not going in the basement in the pantry. It's dark and scary in there. And she says, no, Johnny, just go get the soup. It'll be fine. You're, just, you're fine. Go get the soup. He goes, uh-uh, I'm not going. So finally she says, Johnny, it'll be okay. Jesus will be in there with you. So Johnny sort of hesitantly walks down the stairs and walks over to the pantry door and slowly opens it, and he peeks inside, and he sees that it's dark. And he gets ready to walk away, and then all at once he has an epiphany. An idea comes, and he says, as he turns back to the dark pantry, Jesus, if you're in there, would you hand me that can of tomato soup? <laughs> Sometimes uh, responding to the uh, epiphany of God in our life is as simple as saying, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus, I want to have faith, but I'm afraid. Help my fear, right? Jesus, walk with me through this journey. Now, I've shared this quote with you before, but I love it so much. It's from uh, Dr. Stanley Jones. He says, I am inwardly fashioned for faith, not for fear. Fear is not my native land. Faith is. I am so made that worry and anxiety are sand in the machinery of life. Faith is the oil. I live better by faith and confidence than by fear, doubt, and anxiety. A John Hopkins University doctor says, we do not know why it is that worriers die sooner than the non-worriers, but that is a fact. But I, who am simple of mind, think I know. We are inwardly constructed in nerve and tissue, brain cell and soul, for faith and not for fear. God made us that way. To live by worry is to live against reality. I, I love this idea that when God shows up in our life, it is scary, right? What is the first response of every angel to every person in the Bible is, do not be afraid, right? But 
But God offers to help us through that fear if we will trust in Him, if we will have faith in Him, if we will follow Him. One other really important thing about what it means to choose faith when God shows up in your life comes to me from the story of the wise men. I, I, I notice there's a weird moment in this story, right, where off screen, the wise men see the star. The first time we hear about it, they are, they are coming to Jerusalem. They're talking about seeing the star that's rising. They're asking for directions. And then Herod and everybody's scared, and they hear the prophecies from Micah, and Herod gives them some instructions. And we pick up verse 9, when they'd heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. It's almost like they see the star. They're like, oh, that means Messiah's been born. They, they go to Jerusalem to get directions, and after they leave Jerusalem, the star becomes like a directional light. It's not doing that beforehand. Why not? Why doesn't the star just guide them all the way from Parthia to Bethlehem? Um, I think part of it uh, is because there is this this experience of being tested in our faith. They have to go to Bethlehem to show their faith and trust. Uh, but I think part of it is they're not looking for the star. They're looking for the one the star points to. And this is so incredibly important that the star was already visible for them in Parthia. It was already visible for them in their homes in the east. They could have stayed there and enjoyed the star and said, hey, look at that cool, miraculous thing happening in the sky. But they weren't looking for the star. They were looking for the one the star pointed to. And I think um, when we experience God, sometimes in those moments of epiphany, we can be so excited about the star, we miss the one the star points to. We can be so excited about what God can do for us, we forget that the real gift is God Himself. I've been watching the um, third season of The Chosen. I'm not showing any clips today, so just, you know, just end your excitement right now. Um, but I've been, I've been watching the third season of The Chosen, uh, and in the second episode, there's a scene where little James, James, son of Alphaeus, comes to Jesus. Jesus has just given them the instruction to go out by twos and um, share the gospel of the kingdom of God and heal the sick and cast out demons. James walks with a limp, and he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, how am I, um, an unhealed man who, by the way, you've never healed, even though you've healed all these other people, how am I supposed to go out and heal others? And in a nutshell, what Jesus says in response is, um, there's a difference between a crowd and a disciple. The crowds come, throughout the whole series uh, of the stories of Jesus in the Gospels, the crowds come because they want what Jesus can give them. They want healing. They want a great sermon. They want to hear Him denounce the Romans. They want to hear Him overthrow the temple. They want to have a great meal. Do that loaves and fishes thing again. That was fun. The disciples aren't asking what Jesus can give them. The disciples just want Jesus. And this is so huge, right? Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. People who choose faith over fear when God shows up in their life um, are ultimately people who want not what God can give them, they just want God Himself. I've 
told you this story for sure before, but it's my favorite story of my Grandma Goldie. So my, my dad's mom, um, her name was Goldie, and she died at 96. Uh, and I remember very vividly, I was in high school, and I remember um, that Grandma had had lots of health issues. She was sound of mind, but frail of body. And one of her issues was she had a broken hip, and she was in the hospital. I remember the doctor coming in and, and giving a report, you know, Mrs. Gates, I've got some good news. Things are looking positive. Some of your numbers are up. And they left, and the family gathered around Grandma and said, hey, that's great news. And Grandma said, no, it's terrible news. And Grandma, how is that terrible news? She says, I just want to die and go be with Jesus. People keep praying for me. I keep getting better. It's very irritating. And I, I come back to that all the time because my grandma was a woman who chose not the star, but the one for whom the star was pointing. She didn't need five more minutes or five more years or 50 more years when she knew she had eternity with Christ. She just wanted to be with Jesus. Right? That's what the wise men want. They just want to be with Jesus. They're not interested in what Jesus can bring. Uh, and, and I think perhaps um, when we are challenged, when when we are confronted with the appearance of God or the call of God or the commands of God in our life and we're inclined to choose fear over faith, perhaps what we need to be reminded of is that the real gift of Christ is not what He does for us, but just Christ with us. And that faith is about wanting to be with Jesus, no matter what healing or what disruption He might bring to our lives. Perfect love drives out fear. So my prayer for you and for me in this season of epiphany is that God will keep showing up. God wasn't just Emmanuel in the manger. God is still Emmanuel. God is still with us. I pray God will keep showing up. I pray you will notice, and I pray that every time Christ shows up in your life, you will respond like the Magi, like the wise men, like Grandma Goldie, even like five-year-old Johnny, uh, that you will say, uh, Jesus I want you, no matter what else might come. And I pray that you too might be the ones who give up what you cannot keep to gain what you can.